This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. What is your perfect beachside spot? Does it come with a pier, fisherman and a lighthouse? Eva Clifford has conjured up this ideal spot with a national park and a waterfall close by in her book, When We Fall. Welcome, Eva. Lovely to be here, Jan. You've made merit the place, the setting, and this lighthouse overlooks Fish Hook Harbour. What do the locals say about Fish Hook Harbour? Oh, the idea is, is that um, in a sense you can't escape it, that you'll always be drawn home. And so that happens particularly for one of my characters, Denny, and Alex, who's the main character of the story, is actually her daughter and gets dragged back as well. Denny left Merritt when she was young and pregnant. Her daughter, Alex, has only been back when she was a young girl. But she has memories of meeting her grandfather, the town doctor, and their horrific last meeting. What went wrong then? I guess it's one of those things I wanted to play with the idea that you can forget about things and when you're back in the setting, suddenly memories can hit you from your childhood. And Alex remembers her her grandfather as being this difficult person that she was quite fearful of without really remembering why and when she's back in the town she starts to think about something that he said to her that implied his criticism of her and her mother she doesn't know who her father is but a a sense that you guess that he the the grandfather does know and makes judgments about it and her mother's got early onset dementia as anybody who knows someone with dementia that um, knows that those people will regress in their memories and often the memories that stick are the ones from late teenage to early womanhood in this case sort of time can often get quite stuck in it and it's those sort of memories that Alex starts to see as well to start to piece a whole other side to her mother that she wasn't aware of until now. Well Alex has come back and everybody in town knows about her being a city barrister and of course as you say her mum's early onset dementia. When Alex goes into her mother's house she finds 17 jars of raspberry jam, but not much food. Alex needs to organise assisted living for her mum. But that's not Alex's only problem. What's happening in Alex's life? Oh, Alex is sort of at the crossroads of her life a bit, really. So she's recently divorced and she's a barrister, but work has been slow. And in barristers' lives, that is actually not that uncommon that you can kind of go from feast to famine relatively easily and she's quite worried that perhaps along with the divorce she's actually losing her career at the same time so she certainly is a bit lost and then on top of that has to deal with her mum who is someone who she's been quite happy to kind of keep at arm's length that they're both very independent and quite different people and the illness has forced them to sort of come together and neither of them are that thrilled with that idea even though they do love each other. Well, the book starts with Alex and her mum walking on the beach one morning. (laughs) And this is pretty horrific. What do they find? Well, it's it's a crime novel. So they end up finding a severed leg. Police starts the whole murder mystery part. 
off. Alex gets to babysit the leg while she waits for the police. And the local senior sergeant, Kingsley Kelly, is early on the scene. Kingsley Kelly, he's the same age as Alex's mum, Denny, and knows about them. Let's, let's hear a little bit about Kingsley Kelly from page 44. Alex is trying to do the right thing by the investigation and to, as a lawyer, make sure everything's done properly and all the I's are dotted and the T's crossed and is finding Kingsley Kelly's more relaxed way about investigating something. Um, she's not happy with that at all. Um, so they're having a bit of a discussion which shows their sort of different points of view. And after Alex sort of says, this is a possible murder that you're dealing with, you need to make sure that rules are followed. Kelly shook his head in disgust. Country policing is a little different from working as a smart-ass lawyer in the city. Requires another level of judgment when you're part of the community, not separate from it. It isn't strangers you need to worry about here. Bloodlines run deep and in unexpected places. Every victim, every accused will know. Blink and the roles are swapped. The past runs alongside us all the time. Some days it spills right open. Just a little bit before that, and it's another quote. Alex had met police who hated lawyers on principle. Lawyers were to blame for getting the crooks off, clogging up the system with appeals, being pedantic, not understanding the real world. She suspected Kelly might be one of these cops. So what does Kelly think happened? Well, Kelly, at this stage, he thinks it's an accident because he's assuming that she's just had a kayaking accident and it's all gone a bit wrong, which is, to his mind, plausible. It's also that he doesn't actually want to face that there's been a murder on his watch and whether he might be end up being a bit implicated in that murder through actions that he's taken previously. So he's essentially in denial, and as we find out, there's a fair bit for him to be in that he's in denial about. And as we go on, we discover more and more that he's not quite what he seems. Mm. But hopefully he's not a stereotypical lazy cop or corrupt cop mm. either. It's a bit more complicated. And so that she can see that the case is going off the rails right at the beginning. And she's kind of determined that it doesn't happen on her watch. Talk about the case, but let's talk about the body. And the body, <laughs> we find out, is Maxine. What's her connection with the other death that happened in Merritt? Well, poor old Maxine. Maxine is the local art teacher. And when they find her body, there's a tattoo that Maxine has on her, um, around her ankle, which is of a black feather. And that links back to um, a young student of hers that did get murdered a couple of years before. And um, Alex is sort of perturbed by the stories that she hears that linking these two women, in particular, that Alex was had been planning to um, have an art exhibition of Bella's work uh, and that she certainly seemed to have concerns around Bella's death and was interested in trying to work out who had murdered Bella because that's still an unsolved case. Now we talked about Merritt being a, an old small community but there's Nick Kirk who's come into town and he's very wealthy and he is really bringing new things like a, a salmon business, which has riled the local fishermen. He's got an incredible house called the Erie on a mountaintop uh, just outside the National Park. He's also sponsored the Bush Fire Brigade 
and the logging companies didn't like him. And there's Eden Point development of sustainable buildings that he's trying to get up. But what he did do with Maxine is they shared a very modern and glitzy art gallery in town. Ah, what was Nick getting Maxine to paint? Well, so, I mean, Nick's come into town with all his billions, his tech billions, and, as he said, is rolling things up. So it's sort of that classic of uh, change is never all good or all bad, and so depending on how you feel about Nick Quirk, um, you, um, there's some people who think he's the best thing that's ever happened, and um, certainly he's making, you know, big announcements about greening the town up and doing sustainable developments and jobs. And there's some people who are very sceptical about that and there's some people that think he's just brilliant. His relationship with Maxine is quite different. Uh, he views her as a friend and says at least that he's devastated when she dies. He had invested in her gallery because he believed in her as an artist. Maxine had been doing very successfully what one character describes as fake paintings. And the paintings are skillful knockoffs of your Dutch masters and your things like that. So the idea is that should you be lucky enough to own a priceless artwork, of course, most of them are held in banks because of security, that you can get a copy made of it in order to still display your largesse to the world. Um, or maybe even pretend that you own it when you don't. And so Maxine, unhappily, but that's how she makes her money, has been um, making these amazing artworks, to which Nick was really hoping that by his investment that she could actually go and do her own original work. But um, mm. unfortunately, Maxine meets an untimely death and doesn't get the opportunity. <laughs> no, but there's one artwork. Eva Clifford, I've got to ask you, how did you choose Bruegel's painting? It's called Landscape with the Fall of Icarus. If you look at the picture, for me, it looks a bit like a crime scene. Now, the reason mm. I say that is when you first look at the picture, it looks like a beautiful day. The sun is setting. You have a farmer tilling the crops. You have a fisherman at the water's edge. You have a shepherd looking up into the sky. But then something happens, and that is the clue in the title. See these two legs splashing in the water. It's Icarus. He's fallen from the sky. He's dying. And for me, that was the classic huge twist in a crime novel that you can have this beautiful country town that everything's going lovely and then all of a sudden you've got a crime on your hands and everything shifts and kept on looking at it and I fell in love with it so much that I incorporated it into the book so in my book I have a painting that's called The Accusation that Maxine has painted and in it is she accusing people Icarus falling from the sky. There's many associations of falling, falling apart, falling from grace, falling in and out of love. Alex had certainly fell out of love for her, her ex-husband, Tom, but there was Kieran. There's also an exhibition in the museum in the little town of Merritt called When We Fall. So what was that type of falling? Uh, yes, uh, another type of falling, and that's when we fall pregnant. That exhibition, even though obviously that's the title of my book that I gave to that exhibition, but it is actually a real exhibition. It was called Without Consent, and it was an exhibition by the National Archives 
in response to Prime Minister Julia Gillard's apology to those who had suffered from forced adoption, which I was lucky enough to go to, to the exhibition as it toured around Australia, and I went to it in Geelong. And it was a deeply moving exhibition, and I couldn't help but be amazed by the bravery of the people involved to tell their stories and also wounds that probably will never heal. Also, the treatment given to particularly the women involved, but also some of the men involved, as well as then their their children, in that you could have what was called legal adoption, but these women essentially didn't stand a chance against the system. The minute they turned up pregnant, if they were single, then every kind of contact they had with officialdom would be assuming that they'd be giving their babies up for adoption, whether that was the woman's intention or not. And the pressure being brought to bear at such a vulnerable time in their lives. I found that a really uh, amazing exhibition to experience and so I incorporate that, I I put that exhibition into the book that it's sitting currently in merit but not many people want to go. Robin is the curator at the museum where this exhibition is on and she knows so much about everything that's happening in merit. There's another quote, and it's Alex when she goes to see this. She says, oh, I guess it's such a long time ago. People have moved on and they don't want to look back. Well, that's an interesting thing. So there's a number of deaths and now a million-dollar reward for information. I am from a country town myself, and I, I love in novels to have country towns that I feel that work, and you can understand why people live there rather than country towns that are so kind of awful and gothic and gloomy and murderous that you wonder why everyone just doesn't hightail it out of there. So I did want the feeling that, that Merritt is, is a great place to live and you can bring up your family there and people have lived very happy lives there. But some terrible things have happened, as happen everywhere, but that, that it's a functioning town behind it. In When We Fall, a daughter reconnects with her mother in a small town she grew up in. Alex wants to know about her father, but finds that she is involved in a murder mystery and there is a possibility she could be murdered too. It's a crime novel cleverly written by Aoife Clifford. Thank you, Aoife. Lovely, Dan. Really enjoyed it. And now it's David's turn. What will our environment be like in the not too distant future with depleted stocks of wildlife and a climate in chaos? Sean Raven provides us with a possible scenario that addresses this in The Good Captain. So Sean, welcome to 3CR. Thanks for having me. You have a ship in this novel called Mama and She is like a character in her own right. At one point, she's being inspected for repairs. The Liberty crowns inside the central nervous system are showing signs of decomposing. There's a strange imbalance in the lateral line that delayed its reawakening after our time in the gyre. And I've detected a sustained restlessness within the swim bladder that I can only explain as old age. They're all organic elements. Are you saying Mama is sick? No. I'm saying she's overdue, a complete refit. Who is Mama and how do you explain this organic nature? Well, the uh, attributes that you're talking about, like a lateral line in a swim bladder, they're all parts of a fish. And I sort of became interested in the idea of attributing aspects of um, a fish's biology to a ship. And 
to sort of give it a futuristic element, but also to um, create that blend of organic and mechanistic. Also, yes, to give give the opportunity for the ship to develop a character of her own. But after the opening of the novel where there's uh, an attack, a raid, and they're wanting to get back to mother or mama, we're wondering if it's a person or what it is. So mama has more than just the role of a ship. She's a protecting force in some ways. Mama is sort of like an abbreviation of a sea monster, um, uh, a name that I mentioned in the book. And a lot of the characters have abbreviated sea monster names. And so that's how Mama's sort of come around. But yeah, I guess she's home for them. She's home for the crew. And I, I guess all throughout the book, names of things sort of um, are given different meanings. Um, so what might be a Mama in your world is not Mama in this world. And what are Mama and the crew up to, in fact? They're up to no good. <laughs> well, it depends on your opinion of no good, really, I suppose. They're basically on the front line of defending the last creatures that are living in the ocean. It's set in the not-too-distant future where um, the ocean has almost been emptied and people are still fishing. Um, trawlers are still in the ocean and they've sort of reached the point where they can't accept the inaction of politicians and policy uh, and they've taken it upon themselves to defend these last inhabitants of the ocean. Well, you go into great detail where the ocean is concerned and it's very disturbing. One quote from Hull to Horizon, there was no sign of water and the description goes on to detail all the plastics in the ocean at another point maps and charts compiled over hundreds of years were either obsolete or continually being with redrawn so the coastlines have all changed and at another point you describe the levels of the ocean as we go down so this is not just a surface issue. It goes and is layered. So really, how close are we to realising this vision that you described there? Well, when I first started writing the book, I thought it was a long way in the distance. Uh, I thought I wouldn't be facing these things in my lifetime and maybe not even my child's lifetime. But the more I wrote it, the closer these things seem to be approaching. So the extent of plastic in the ocean... Um, you know, the world's produced 9 billion tonnes of plastic since production started in the 1950s, which is more than a tonne for every person on the planet. And a large amount of it ends up in the ocean and it gets collected in these gyres, which are, which are currents. They're, they're, they're sort of like cogs in a, in a clock. A clock has lots of different cogs to make the whole clock turn. And the ocean is the same. It has cogs of different currents that are turning all the time and that rotates the water right around the planet. And these cogs, these gyres, tend to collect the plastic. And at the moment, it collects small pieces of plastic. But the prediction is that in the next 20 years, plastic waste in the ocean is going to triple. And so we will be seeing larger and larger pieces of plastic. And so there's a gyre between um, California and um, Japan. And they one day expect that 
garbage will reach right across. And there are efforts to, to contain this garbage and people are working hard at it, but I don't see people sort of adjusting their behaviour in regards to reducing that plastic in any great extent. That will prevent this from happening. Now, the captain of Mama is called Rena, but now this is an interesting concept. She's had several names with her newfound autonomy. She commenced a new life with a new name. And she's had one, two, three, four, five names. Are we all going to be like Rena, going and having to re-identify ourselves, refashion ourselves over time? I found this an interesting concept. I guess I started just with the concept of I like the idea of a character changing names um, in different parts of her life. I wouldn't be the first person to think that, you know, for a person to change their name, I suppose. But I thought that it's a great way of signalling different sections of your life. And she has four or five very traumatic events in her life that lead up to the point where she's the captain of Mama. And um, all of those names and all of those parts of her life still live within her. And she consults those people and her former selves. And she remembers those former selves. And I mean, I think scientifically, we all change ourselves, you know, regenerate every seven years. We become different people. So who I am now at this age is not who I was when I was a younger man and who I'll be as an older man. And I think maybe changing, she's taking the opportunity to sort of change her name and to identify this time in her life. Another interesting character is uh, the Prime Minister of Australia, Angus, a none too flattering view. He plays computer games as a drug addict and a chauvinist. Satire or truth? Sure. Where are we here? Well, it's important to stress that it's a it's a former prime minister of Australia. He's a he's in retirement. Um, I think it's um, a picture of not just an Australian prime minister, but um, a lot of political leaders in the world at this point. Um, I think you can apply the uh, characteristics of the former prime minister to not only politicians in Australia, but politicians in America and politicians in England and, and other Western countries as well. It's not a very flattering view because I don't find them particularly flattering, you know, I don't find them particularly appealing people. And I think the reason why they're included is because one of the main drives behind the book was frustration of a lack of accountability in our society. And our politicians do not seem to represent us the way they should. And I find this frustrating, and I, I guess it's a fantasy of accountability. I wanted to actually for once. Here's an interesting quote then. We are ocean. Sodium, potassium, calcium in our blood is almost the same as the sea. You tie us inextricably with the ocean. We are part of that ocean that is suffering here. Well, we come from the ocean. I mean, that's quite to say that the, the ratio of potassium, sodium and calcium in our blood is very close to the same ratio that's in salt water. I mean, our evolution, um, we come from the ocean. Um, and I don't know about you, but whenever I swim in the ocean, I feel as though I've come home. It's, you know, it's just so delightful. And I don't subscribe to the idea that humans are separate from nature. Well, of course, we're part of nature. Of course, 
we belong here. Of course, we have a relationship with all of the world, not just other human beings, but we have a relationship with the ocean. We have a relationship with fish. We have a relationship with all the creatures on this planet. And I think they deserve our respect. And I think they deserve our consideration and, our, and, and greater care than what we're, they're currently getting at the moment. Now you mentioned swimming in the ocean and you have a scene where that takes place and it ties into a sort of sexual liberty aboard Mama and it's a form of renewal in some way. I think there is a certain sexual liberty but I think the sexual liberty is actually explained earlier in the book by saying it's about having contact and, and intimacy with people. It's not necessarily always about the sexual nature of it. It's about having human contact and reminding ourselves that we're together. It comes across as natural that being interwoven, as you say, with nature, it's just a normal function. Yeah, well, one would hope that people would think of it as natural because it is. Of course it is. Towards the end of the novel, uh, there's Mama being attacked by jets. There's an uh, encroaching cyclone and I found this juxtaposition interesting because Mama is in many ways and the crew are threatened by aircraft but also by a cyclone. The cyclone in fact stymies some of this attack but even the things that are natural can in fact endanger us and we've got all of these other forces as well that are attacking us. So where are we in that juxtaposition between the man-made world, the natural world, and the chaos that can ensue. There's not too much to read in that. Um, I believe that mankind's sort of movement towards technology and, you know, uh, culture has been a way of dealing with the randomness of nature. We're quite scared and offended by the randomness of nature and would prefer it to didn't, it didn't exist. However, by being scared of it, we've tried to defeat nature and... By trying to defeat nature, we're defeating ourselves. So you have to sort of find this balance between the danger of nature and also not sort of putting all your trust in technology. Now, Last but not least, then, radical environmentalism, because this is what Mama and the crew are on about. Have we reached that stage in the world today where radical action, almost a terrorist-like action, needs to be taken to protect the environment? The reason why I wrote this book was because there are predictions that the ocean will be empty by the year 2050. And that's in my lifetime. How do I look at my son where he says, Dad, where did all the fish go? And I'm going to say, well, they ate them. That's all I can say. And so it depends who you are and what you're prepared to do. Personally, I grew up near the ocean. I love the ocean. The idea of an empty ocean is just the saddest idea that I could possibly imagine. And I think that, you know, if it's a choice between an empty ocean or taking a, a stand or making a stand of violence, then I probably would take it. If I'd lost everything, if I'd lost the ocean, if I'd lost my family, if I'd lost everything that I had, what is left for me except to respond, you know, with someone else, you know, with violence. I don't, I don't imagine that I would sit around and be a pacifist about it. I don't imagine a lot of people would. And I think this is the thing that politicians and people in power tend to forget. History shows us that if you go too far, if you, if you betray your constituents or your, your um, fellow countrymen to a large extent, we will respond. The readers need to make up their own minds about what 
they should do about the environment. And they can start by reading The Good Captain by Sean Rabin. And it's a transit lounge release. So Sean, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks for having me. You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.